Our next speaker is Dr. Simeon Zoll. Simeon is a graduate of Cambridge University with a PhD in theology and religious studies. Simeon's passion is the clear articulation of a charismatic doctrine of the Holy Spirit that stays faithful to the Reformation insight of the bound will. It is this passion that brought him to the works of Christoph Blumhardt, a famous German charismatic healer with deep Lutheran convictions. Blumhardt is credited with having influenced uh, such 20th century theologians as Karl Barth, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Jürgen Moltmann. In a short time, Simeon has several present and forthcoming articles, including the article that you can buy now at the table, titled Reformation Pessimism or Personal Pietism, The Problem of the Holy Spirit in Evangelical Theology. He has future articles in the International Journal of Systematic Theology, The Modern Theologian's Reader, and of course, he is a regular contributor to the Mockingbird blog. This is um, must-see TV, people. If you yourself have grown up or have been min- and have been ministered to uh, the recent charismatic renewal and have since come to a, a renewal of, your, uh, of the gospel, but you're not really sure how to put the two of them together in a, in a, interest- in a consistent way, this is a talk especially for you. If you have ever said aloud or in your heart after hearing a sermon on Romans 7, uh, but what about Romans 8? Uh, this is a talk for you. <laughs> and if you have ever uh, looked at uh, the barren wasteland of your life and wondered and asked, where is God in this world? Where is he? I don't know where he is. This is especially a talk for you. So it is my joy and my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Simeon Zoll. Thank you very much, Todd and David and everyone for having me. It's so fun to be here this year. This conference is... uh, has been so great in the past, but this year is just going from strength to strength, with the exception of me. Um, in terms, I mean, just numbers, fields, it's just really a fun place to be right now, and um, it's an honor to, to speak here. So, one aspect of Christianity that has always particularly fascinated me is religious experience. What does it mean to have a religious experience, an experience of God in your life? What does it mean to encounter the divine? My favorite novel I've read in the last five years at least is called Theophilus North. There are a dwindling number of copies out on the book table. It's definitely worth your while, and I'll be talking about it as I go through. It's written by the novelist and playwright Thornton Wilder, best known for his plays Our Town and The Bridge of San Luis Rey. It's written very late in his life, in the early 70s. I want to begin by telling you a remarkable story from that book. I think the story describes a sort of encounter with the Holy Spirit of God, uh, which I think will serve as a useful backdrop to what I'm going to say today. So Theophilus North is about a young man who quits his job and spends a summer in Newport, Rhode Island in the mid-1920s. 
uh, its last major work Wilder wrote before he died. Early on in the story, for one reason or another, the main character, Theophilus, is asked by a girl's parents to prevent her from eloping with a man she has, yet, she has met. She is an enormously wealthy society girl, and we quickly learn that she has tried to do this before. She has run away from home to try and get married before, and it caused a huge scandal, disgrace for her family. It was in the newspapers, and she was prevented from it. We also learn that her parents are pretty awful, controlling, looking through her stuff to find letters, uh, and just basically not very nice people. So Theophilus finds this woman by the name of Diana Bell, and the man she is running away with, Joe, a sports coach at a local private school. Theophilus soon comes to the conclusion that this marriage would actually be disastrous. The disaster, in his view, would not be the scandal or the way the parents would be upset. Rather, he quickly realizes that these two do not really know each other, and although they think they are in love, it's not really the real thing. She thinks she's in love, but really is just dying to get away from her controlling parents. He thinks he's in love, but really is just bedazzled by her money and glamour and sort of the whole romantic idea of it all. So our protagonist resolves to do as he was asked and to put an end to their plans to elope. And the way in which he does this is remarkable. He basically gets them to figure it, to, to realize what's going on, which they're kind of in this fantasy in their minds about what's happening, and he, he helps them to realize what's really happening here. So he gets the, the guy, the sports coach, to, to start um, reciting sports statistics, and the guy gets all excited. He just loves telling about all the different uh, sort of high school track athletes and everything around, and this goes on and on and on for hours. And meanwhile, the woman is sitting there realizing that she never knew a, that he's so clearly passionate about this stuff that she finds utterly uncompelling. Uh, and basically sort of that his, real, his passion, where he really, what, who he really is, is someone she doesn't know. <laughs> someone who really cares about whether so-and-so did really well in the third leg of the relay race at last week's high school track meet. She's like, oh my gosh, what, what is this? Then they stop at a bar and she goes in and she's kind of she's needy and, and she smokes and she drinks. It's during Prohibition. Uh, and she dances with strangers, and it's all kind of harmless, but still he's like, whoa, I thought I was marrying this respectful, uh, this woman who's sort of high society and all these things, and she's uh, not acting like a lady. She's not who I thought she was. By the end, these two have decided of their own accord not to marry, without Theophilus having said anything, really. Uh, and they say goodnight to each other. A cold bucket of water has been poured over their romantic fantasies, and they are brought back from the brink of an enormous mistake. At this point, Theophilus takes her to her, her house, uh, and I'll just read a little description of, of what she's going through at this moment. He says, I carried her suitcases up to the darkened entrance of her house. She said, hold me a minute. I put my arms around her. It was not an embrace. Our faces did not touch. She wanted to cling for a moment to something less frozen than the lofty structure under which we stood. She was trembling after the freezing realization of the repetitions in her life. Good night, she said. Good night, Miss Bell. She was trembling after the freezing realization of the repetitions in her life. She has, something has happened to her in the last few hours in which who she really is has been revealed to her that she's just an actor playing it a part, she's in reaction to her parents, she's doing the exact same thing she did before that was a mistake before, the guy was just a cipher, 
and, uh, and she's undone. She's trembling, because this is who she really is. I think this was an experience of God, an experience of the Holy Spirit, you could say. And I want to talk about that. The story also reminds me of the woman at the well in John 4, the Samaritan woman, who uh, they talk, Jesus talks to her about this living water. She says, oh, I want some. And he says, go get your husband and come back, and I'll, I'll give you some. And she says, I don't have a husband in the man I'm with. I, I, I don't have a husband. And he says, I know. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And she goes off, and she says to her friends, come and hear the man who told me everything I ever did. He told her the story of her life in that saying. Um, and this is what's happened to Miss Diana Bell. So the question I want to explore today is, is this sort of moment that Diana Bell had an experience of God, an experience of the Spirit? Like I said, I think it is, at least in a way. And I think Wilder thinks so too. Now many, many Christians, in telling the story of how they came to have faith and what has happened since, refer to certain key, often very emotional, moments when it all became real, when the curtain was pulled away, or when they realized that God had been with them in their life all along, or when they had the rug pulled out from under them by the true power and wonder of God's grace. Things like this. Often Christian stories of such experiences are closely related to the category of forgiveness, to feeling forgiven for something that happened in the past, or have the feeling of having a long-standing burden suddenly lifted. These sorts of experiences, which I think are experiences of God, can take place in all sorts of contexts. People talk about driving somewhere in their car, when suddenly some song lyric on the radio seems to be speaking right to them about their life. We heard all about why that might be happening in the amazing session on rock and roll earlier. Or they're in church and the sermon suddenly seems to be spoken directly to them. They're in a worship service and they're singing and suddenly they're weeping and they don't know why. Or they wake up in the middle of the night and hear a voice or have some crashing realization, maybe of the repetitions in their life. Maybe they had a conversation with somebody or they were reading the Bible and some verse just jumped out at them. There are any number of ways in which we can have these kinds of experiences and uh, I just think it's striking when I talk to people, even people who are now very not wanting to emphasize that side of things in their Christian life, how often the starting point was actually something along those lines, or the key event was some kind of moment, some kind of experience in which God was present in a way that was unlike most of their life. Very often, actually, at least for the sort of people who live in New York City and or read highly creative blogs about the intersection of Christian theology and pop culture, uh, these encounters, uh, where the, the deep realities of our lives and the reality of God come together. It's amazing how many of these take place in the slightly embarrassing context of Christian summer camp. I know that's not true of any of you. Um, I mean, you wouldn't believe the number of people whose faith is born one way or another at summer camp or in a, some kind of spiritual retreat that is the adult equivalent. And even if you feel light years away from that now, it's funny how things often began then. So I found this sort of common thread of powerful spiritual experience playing a decisive role in a person's faith, certainly to be true anecdotally among many Christians whom I know. 
It also happens to be true, and I won't go into this too much, but we can talk about it later if you want. Uh, it happens to be true on a very large scale in terms of the overall makeup of Christianity in the world today. Specifically, by far the biggest thing going in global Christianity for the past hundred years has been the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. There are at least 400 million people who are charismatic or Pentecostal Christians these days. And in 1900, there were none. That's an enormous uh, event. Um, but they're mostly sort of in Africa and house churches in, in China, so we don't see them so much. Now, I myself have also had a few extraordinary religious experiences um, that have been decisive in my life and faith. For all the fact that I grew up in church and was baptized and have uh, spent my entire adult life, essentially, in formal study of Christianity, it's not, not that long so far, uh, but it sounds more impressive. Um, the key thing for me, in fact, was a healing service during a youth group trip to North Carolina with Gil Cracky, whom some of you know, where I felt suddenly, while being prayed for, like a veil had been lifted from the universe to reveal behind it a God of both extraordinary cosmic significance and power and of heartbreakingly intimate concern for me and my troubles, my desires, my foibles, my repetitions. Very rarely have I experienced anything like that again, and yet it has been powerful enough to set the course of my life for the past 15 years. So I want to talk about experience of this kind. So Christianity thrives on experience, as I've hopefully shown. At the same time, Christianity also tells a story about human nature that should make us very nervous about our claims to experience of God. So I want to talk about two different problems with experience, two reasons why, for all its how, how, how great it can be and how important it is for so many of us, or has been, uh, there are reasons why we should be a little nervous. The first is that experience like this, this kind of divine encounter, is ephemeral. It is amazingly common for yesterday's feeling of transcendent, God-given purpose to become tomorrow's confusion and depression. Just as God sometimes feels overwhelmingly present, suffusing our every breath and encounter, he can also seem terrifyingly absent, especially in our darkest hours when we need him the most. Christian life has long, cold winters, too, so long at times that we can't help but wonder whether spring and summer ever really happened at all. Or sometimes the powerful experience just kind of fades. People move on with their lives. No particular sign that they'll darken the door of a church again. I had an amazing time uh, in being involved with the Alpha Course at Harvard. It was just, it was, at the time, it seemed like the big new evangelistic push uh, at Harvard, and uh, it was um, really exciting. I met my wife, basically. I got to know her while, while, while being involved with this. And um, we had this first retreat, and seven people, non-Christians, you know, people who, who definitely didn't consider themselves Christian, had somehow agreed to come along to this retreat we had. Some of you know about Alpha. It's a kind of introduction to Christianity course with a charismatic bent. Seven people had powerful experience, but they suddenly started weeping in the middle of a room while I was praying for them, and other people too. Um, amazing these sort of Harvard kids uh, just encountering the living God. I'm not sure that any one of those seven, now seven years later, goes to church or really thinks much about what happened then at all. One by one, they sort of just became interested in other things. And I, I, I hope for the best. And I, I don't know what's going on in their lives at all, uh, almost any of them. Um, but that was a, that's a stunning thing. We were so excited at the time, and yet it it had very little of the kind of effect that we were... The reason we were excited 
most of it they'd be Christians. Uh, so <laughs> I'm well aware of this kind of ephemerality of, uh, of, Christian, of, of religious experience. Now, another problem with religious experiences, with feelings of intimacy with God, a clear sense of his purposes for us from day, for day, from day to day, is that it is very easy to take our own deep wishes and desires and to say that they are God. Often, we, we, we're, in all sincerity, we think that we're hearing from God, but really we're just kind of baptizing what we already wanted to do. So charismatic Christianity, Christianity that focuses on experience in this way, is known both for being extraordinarily powerful and effective and for having a tendency to be baby pool shallow, prone to being undone by unexpected suffering, by sin, by doubt, liable to prosperity gospels in which God really wants me to have that BMW. And that's really where you know, the God of Jesus Christ is, has his energies focused right now. Uh, or to a kind of serial denial about our own failings and sins through blaming forces of spiritual evil uh, for our own failings. Uh, this guy who I studied, Christoph Blumhardt, who I'll tell you a little more about in a minute. Not, not too much, don't worry. Um, he, uh, you can read all about it for $120 this summer when my uh, book comes out. <laughs> I'm not kidding, that's how much it costs. Um, uh, in World War I, many countries in Europe were swept with a kind of nationalistic fever, and Germany was no exception. The, the, the line was, God is with us, Gott mit uns, God with us. Um, and from the, the liberals to the conservatives, from the Protestants to the Catholics, there was this sense that God had unified, like Pentecost, he'd unified disparate groups in Germany, including the socialists, who hadn't agreed with anyone else on anything for several decades. He unified them to support the war cause. Even the socialists voted for the war budget. And uh, because, and there was this sense the Christians thought that God was, was, had some purpose for Germany in, in prosecuting this war. It seems pretty ridiculous to think of that now notoriously one of the most useless and sort of meaningless uh, wars in history. Christoph Blumhardt saw through this uh, from the very beginning. He's called this, this war spirit, this satanic spirit, he called it. He was, uh, he was well aware of how people could project their own. They wanted to go to war. They wanted to, Germany had just been united. They wanted to show that how great they were, how they could fight, beat France again, just like they did in 1871. I mean, there are all these different factors, and, and then they kind of baptized their desires and, and called it God, as I think did other countries. Um, but it wasn't God. It wasn't the Spirit of God. It was something much more mundane and much more horrible. I mean, similarly, I always I give a talk once, and I still haven't really resolved this question, but um. When I was a senior in college, I was like, oh, I, I want to go study theology, and I want to go to Cambridge, where I've been for the last couple of years. And uh, I asked him, why, why Cambridge? Am I feeling called by God? It just happens to be this sort of well-known place with beautiful buildings and where sort of, uh, I mean, it doesn't really take much to make someone want to go to Cambridge, at least if you're a nerd like me. Um, so why, am I, why do I think that God wants me to go there instead of Kentucky Mountain Bible College? or any number of places where maybe I could, I could learn, I could take courses on Christianity, I could, you know, why there? Um, and so I was very, there was a part of me that wanted to say, God wanted me to go. There was a part of me that said, isn't that convenient? Um, still haven't fully resolved that one, by the way. So theologically, we could say that there is an ambivalence in Christianity, very often anyway, between a high view of the action of the Holy Spirit in our lives, sort of this kind of experience, 
on the one hand and on the other, of the low, view, low estimation of human nature. Uh, about the idea we're sinners, we're self-deceived, we need help. Um, this low view that is basic to a religion that's based on the human grace's, race's great need to be saved from ourselves by an outside power. So an ambivalence. So a, 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 we're of two minds. Christianity is a bit of two minds about, about experience for these reasons. So what I want to talk about in the next few minutes is this ambivalence, about one or two ways in which it can maybe begin to be resolved, and how we, uh, I mean, how can we have the powerful experiences of God, the sense of divine intimacy and purpose, without becoming naive, uh, without moving away from the profundity of a religion in which God took a humble form of a carpenter's son, a religion which places a sign of suffering and defeat at its center, not a sign of, woohoo! Um, that's, that's me talking about the opposite of the cross, I don't know. Um, in order to help us understand this ambivalence I'm talking about, I need to say a few words first about Mockingbird's favorite theologian, 16th century reformer Martin Luther. I've heard a little bit about him already. Um, few people in the history of Christianity have talked more powerfully about sin and weakness and struggle and human opposition to God than Martin Luther. Luther was a man with an extraordinarily powerful view of the world, of God, and of what it means to live in relation to God. Perhaps more than any other Christian theologian, he articulated a vision of faith that takes the dark side of life extremely seriously. If you are a person who is currently suffering deeply, a person who really hurts, Luther's your guy. Similarly, if you are someone who so often stands in conflict with yourself, who gets tossed and turned in your inner life, who gets paralyzed easily, you know, you, you, with whatever it is you need to do, your taxes, your job, uh, whatever, you know, writing your PhD, I've heard people have problems with that. Um, if you're a person who gets kind of paralyzed uh, and you spend your day reading American Idol recaps and blog posts about the iPad, Luther is for you. If you're a person who's afraid of what Johnny Cash, following Nick Lowe, I believe, is that right, David, the beast in me, Nick Lowe? All right. Um, uh, what Johnny Cash, following Nick Lowe, called the beast in me. If you're afraid of what you're capable of, if you actually let go, if you actually let your real sort of self out, then Luther is your theologian. He knew about the dark side of human nature. Most importantly, perhaps, he knew about how that dark side does not disappear when you become a Christian. And he certainly knew that the emotional highs fade, sometimes never to return. Luther came up with extraordinary categories for describing all of this and how it relates to the God of the New Testament. He said that God speaks to us not so much through the good things that happen, but the bad things. Not through glory, but on a cross. Not in a throne room or executive suite, but in a manger. That it is the we experience God's sub-contrario underneath the opposite. That, uh, a, that's one, one of the categories he used called a theology of the cross. He also talked about how there is something called the law, you might have heard of it, which comes into our lives and makes us feel awful. The Bible talks about it a little bit too. I was joking. Huh? Uh, and this law shows us our limits and our hypocrisies, shakes us existentially, it kills us. Uh, and how this law is from God and how it's radically distinct from God's good news and yet integral to it. 
Luther said that even as Christians, when we are told what we ought to do, what would be best for us to do, instead of helping us to do those things, being told actually makes the impotence of the problem worse. Luther also said that we are at the same time justified in a sinner. We are fully okay before God and fully the same messed up person we were before at the same time. That our life will always have these two elements, this side of the grave. So the ministry of Mockingbird is in a significant part to share this particular deeply powerful perspective on Christianity that Luther and people like him have had. The goal is to help people to accept this darker side, to recognize it, just to approach God still as sinners, not as saints. The church, unfortunately, is so often pretty terrible at communicating about this. Often the powerful truths that Luther knew about and that he found in the Bible are better communicated in pop culture, in movies and songs and that weird advertising campaign about ice cream that my brother John put up on the blog a few weeks ago than they are in the church. And this is, this is part of what Mockingbird is all about. <clears throat> now, I love what Luther had to say. It was the power of these sorts of ideas, the accuracy I felt they had in describing my own life, my own faith, that made me want to be a theologian. But there was always one aspect of Luther's ideas that never quite rang completely true to me, and it relates to our larger discussion of experience. So remember the kind of experiences I was describing about God's love and sense of purpose he can give us and the way religious experience can open up the world and fill it to the brim with meaning. Although Luther was no stranger to such experiences, over time, in most forms, they increasingly made him nervous, so much so, in fact, that he became enormously critical of people who gave day-to-day emotional experience of the Spirit in this kind of way, much weight at all. He knew that we are still sinners, as we've been saying, but we are amazingly good at turning ourselves into the center of the universe, at hearing only what we want to hear and ignoring the rest. Another factor that's important here is that Luther was at the same time utterly enchanted with the Bible. He had been rescued from his troubles by the Bible, by reading the Bible. It was the way that God spoke to him in the midst of an institutional church that had, in his view, lost its way beyond repair. It was reliable when his internal life was fickle and manic. It did not tell him lies, like he said the church did with its stories about indulgences and buying years off of purgatory and treasuries of merit. The Bible told him about the grace of God for sinners. So Luther is a person who experienced scripture in all its power and attractiveness and ability to tell you everything you ever did, like the woman at the well. He was crushed by the God he found there and raised up by the same. So when Luther met his first charismatics, and they basically were, Uh, though it's slightly anachronistic. Um, Some followers of a guy named Thomas Munzer, known as the Zwickau Prophets, for those who care, Uh, and then also especially one of his colleagues at Wittenberg, Andreas Bodenstein von Karlstadt. When he met these people, Luther quickly assumed that somehow they weren't reading their Bible. They weren't trusting the word, not the way he did. If they were, then how could they come to the wacky conclusions they came to? No, they were claiming to experience the Spirit alongside and even from time to time apart from the Word of God. So he advanced a theological counter-argument. He formulated his high view of Scripture in just about the strongest terms you can imagine. Luther said, and primarily in a treatise called Against the Heavenly Prophets in the Matter of Images and Sacraments, uh, he said that 
the saving action of the Spirit is tied to the external word by which he meant essentially preaching of the gospel that's tied to the text of scripture and the two sacraments that are sanctioned by that scripture. So the Spirit works through specific means, not through really other things, at least in its primary important role. As he put it, now when God sends forth his holy gospel, he deals with us in a twofold manner, first outwardly, then inwardly. Uh, outwardly, he deals with us through the oral word of the gospel and through material signs, so baptism and the sacrament of the altar. Inwardly, he deals with us through the Holy Spirit, faith, and other gifts. The inward experience follows and is affected by the outward. All of which to say, and he claimed a kind of meaningful communication and activity from God's Spirit, apart from this Bible-based preaching and sacraments, is, is not to be trusted. From here, there developed the strong Protestant tradition of trusting the Bible over and against charismatic experience. This is common in the Reformed tradition as well, though expressed slightly differently. The high view of scripture in Protestant churches derived from Luther combining his wonderful experiences of God's word with his insight about human sin and self-deception. They combined into this saying, the spirit, uh, let's, let's not talk about the spirit walking through the radio. Let's talk about the spirit talking through scripture. And it, sounds, it sounds right. I mean, it sounds good. I've wrestled a lot with these same issues, especially the question of whether human nature's darkness means that we really cannot expect the spirit to act in the world apart from this criterion. I share Luther's dark view of human nature. I don't think Christians are any better than anyone else when push comes to shove. I've seen people do things that are so obviously just what they wanted to do and called it God. I, uh, Christoph Blumhart once said, I prefer the reality of sin to the swindle of religions. I can relate to that, and I think Luther can too. So I can see why Luther would be nervous about talking of taking our inner feelings and desires and attributing them to God. But does that mean we have to throw all that out entirely? Does it mean that experience of God, some of the most profound feelings in our lives, very often what got us into this Christianity thing in the first place, is a complete waste of time, pastorally and theologically? That everything we know about ourselves in the world that is not directly based in the revelation of the Bible and in a certain kind of understanding of who Jesus Christ is, is worthless? To put it another way, does it mean that moments like we saw earlier, like Miss Bell being faced with the freezing realization of the repetitions in her life, that these are not experiences of God, not really? One of my favorite theologians, Gerhard Ferdi, agrees with Luther about this. There's a quote by him that I think helps illustrate what is a bit unconvincing, just at least to me, about the full-blooded view that Luther had on experience of the Spirit, at least in his most polemical phase on this topic. Ferdy says, the preaching of the law is not dependent upon anxious consciences or ready-made guilt feelings. The preaching law of the law is the use of the text to cut in upon and slay old beings. Um, the preaching of the gospel, likewise, not only comforts the conscience-stricken but also raises the dead to new life. The unconditional promise is not a word searching merely for those few who somehow feel the need for it. It is a word that goes on to attack, on the attack to create its hearers out of the nothing of our sin. Ferdy is taking Luther's idea, interpreting it in a way where he's sort of saying, what matters is the word, not your feelings. 
The word will create the feelings. It'll do, and and it's, it, you can see where he's going. It's kind of the logic of the argument. But do we really need to be so worried about ready-made guilt feelings, about stricken consciences, about those who somehow feel the need for it? I don't think we need the word to go on further attack to find the stuff that we need to be saved from. I think it's dangerous to get too far from the feelings we actually have and focus kind of ideologically on feelings that somehow the word creates. So how do we hold these two together? I've been promising that I I would try to do so. Um, And here I go. Christoph Blumhardt's birth pangs, well, sorry. Christoph Blumhardt said an amazing thing about the spirit. He didn't think the spirit was only tied to the word in this kind of way. He said instead that, um, he said this, although we may find a kind of peace with God in the authentic Christian life, the reliable mark of the Holy Spirit at work is not so much divine peace as birth pangs, the anxiety and unsettled feeling that accompanies profound change. For Bloomhart, the place where you can be most certain that the Spirit is at work in your life. It can be experiences of all kind, but the, the most certain place is the difficult place. The pain, the suffering, the place where your ego is thwarted, the feelings of judgment, of inadequacy, of paralysis and repetition. That in these places, the Holy Spirit of God is present, whether or not you've been to a sermon lately. And I think, in a way, this captures actually the spirit of a lot of, of, a lot of what Luther had to say. But it's really fundamentally different. And Blumhardt himself was actually a healer. He was a faith healer. People came to him to have his hands put on to you know, make their hunchback go away. Um, he was, he was a, Luther would have said he was pretty wacko uh, in a lot of what he had to say. But he was also a very insightful, profound uh, reader of the Spirit. Uh, he, again, unlike his, his Lutheran colleagues, saw uh, World War I, I guess, for what it is what it was quite early on. And it was by saying, God is in the bad thing, not in the good thing, mostly. You get this kind of idea in a verse that both Blumhardt and Luther loved, John 16:8, where it says, the spirit will come to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, there's a simile in Romans 8, the presence of the spirit is associated with labor pains. That's where Blumhardt gets this idea that the reliable mark of the Holy Spirit at work is not so much peace as birth pangs, the anxiety and unsettled feeling that accompanies profound change. To put it another way uh, is to say that experiences of the law, for those of you who are familiar with that sort of theological language in the Lutheran sense, experiences of the law are experiences of the spirit in this capacity. The difference with Luther is that in Blumhardt's view, God is just as likely to speak in this way through a song or a movie or some comment someone makes, some conversation, as he is through a formal sermon or the Bible, though the formal sermon and the Bible are really, really important too. Um, So this helps make sense of much of what Mockingbird does. The Spirit's powerful presence, her presence in powerful descriptions of our lives, in pop culture, in high culture, uh, in abreaction, for those of you who were here last year, which is when we sort of connect with art, uh, our own personal lives, kind of way there's an experience that um, takes place in which we feel known by by a piece of art. Uh, anything that tells you the story of your life, that tells you everything you ever did, makes you feel known and understood, or which reveals to you Wilder's 
freezing realization. Uh, this is um, where the spirit is. I want to go one step further even than this, however. Something that has become more and more clear to me as I've spent the last five years thinking very deeply about the, the theology of the cross, about God's presence and what is difficult and so on. Uh, it is the power, the power of these categories, like birth pangs, that God is present in, in the cross and so on, is in significant part that they give us a way to accept our lives as they are, not as we wish they were. Last night, Fitz talked powerfully about kicking against the reality. He talked about a giant steel door that he was trying to push open, but actually the reality was that the door opened this way. He was kicking the door. We spend so much time kicking against the reality, kicking the the big steel door that actually only opens in the other direction. We resist the things we don't like in our life, and we seek out the things that we do like. So we're lonely, say, in college. Say some theoretical person who's not me uh, in college spent, um, was very lonely and, and, and spent a lot of time, instead of just accepting the loneliness, the pain, just saying, yep, this is it. This is what's happening. Spent hours and hours like finding cool indie bands that no one had heard of that I could then play at my social club, and then people would think I was cool, and that would somehow lead to girls, and then somehow I'd be less lonely, or I wouldn't be worthless. I mean, no, I, mean I spent my whole life basically trying to you know, dress. Every, the whole thing that I was kind of trying to present to the world was basically a resistance to the reality of my loneliness. I mean, sorry, someone else's. <laughs> uh, the same it can be true in academia and I'm sure in many jobs where you just spend your whole life planning how to get to that next step where you have more power, where you can finally have job security, where people respect you, where you get to be on the editorial board of some journal that only 30 people have heard of anyway, but it matters to them. Um, you can just spend your whole life kind of strategizing, resisting the reality of just where you actually are and trying to make your life something that it isn't. Maybe it will be later, but it isn't now. So we resist our lives. We resist uh, reality. And I think theology of the cross and the doctrine of justification, all these things, and they're not just reducible to this, but one way of looking at them is as powerful ways of learning to see what is given in our lives today as from God. So the idea that what is right in front of us and what is given, uh, that, that idea that what is in front of us is what is given by God. Uh, is something we resist with extraordinary creativity and tenacity. So when we say that God works in the negative, one effect of that is that it means that instead of fighting the negative thing in your life, you can say, no, this is God, and I am at the mercy of God. And that can lead to enormous freedom, creativity, all sorts of things, because God isn't just a negative God. Um, But the first step, as it were, is to accept what actually is rather than what we wish were the case. And so theology of the cross, that kind of thing, is an enormously powerful tool for helping us to do that. So if God feels deeply present and alive and wonderful, the Spirit of God in your life, that's great. That's where the Spirit is present with you today. If God feels horribly distant, silent, dry as dust, that is where the Spirit is. Or if your life is kind of ho-hum, just trucking along, that is, in its way, though it probably won't last very long, <laughs> that is, in its way, the presence of the Spirit. 
sometimes in the past year I've felt like I spent my whole life sitting at the breakfast table with my 18-month-old son Thomas, feeding him cereal. You know, oh, he dropped some, I better wipe it up, you know, feed him some more cereal, um, read a nursery rhyme, same one, over and over and over again. Um, oh, hickory, dickory, dock. you know, uh, little kids don't get tired of things as quickly as, as their parents do sometimes. Um, and so I just spent a lot of my life, it's just, that's it, I'm just sitting there, eating cereal, reading nursery rhymes. It's neither all that great nor all that terrible. And that's, I think there's a way in which we have to be able to find the Spirit of God there too. There's neither the blackness that leads to spiritual dawn nor the ecstatic sense of ultimate meaning and purpose. Uh, but still, that's, that's the reality, that's what's given. St. Augustine came back again and again to a verse in 1 Corinthians where Paul asks one of the most remarkable questions I know of. Paul asks, For what do you have that you did not receive? rhetorical question the answer is nothing everything is something that you have received there are any number of biblical metaphors that point to this sort of approach to life that Bloomhart helped me to help point me in the direction of we are to be like lilies that neither toil nor spin even though Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these we are to be like sparrows who neither reap nor sow We are taught by the preacher in Ecclesiastes that we are to accept that everything has a season. That's just the way it is. And we learn that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like little children. And again, I always used to sort of roll my eyes when people with kids gave examples about kids. Um, Now I have kids, and I'm going to give an example about a kid. Uh, To be like a little child, to be my my son, he just, if he's unhappy, he cries. If he's happy, he smiles. If he's kind of tired and bored, he just sort of yawns and sits there. He just, he just is dealing with reality exactly as it is. And I think that's part of what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God comes to those who just accept what's in front of them. Again and again, also, Christians are likened to plants, the most passive creatures in the universe. Uh, we have no real choice but to accept, uh, plants have no real choice but to accept that God will send the sun and the rain as he pleases. The plant just sits there. The funny thing, though, is that this very passivity of just accepting what is, as from God, has a mischievous tendency to lead to activity, to lead to creativity, to feelings of purpose and meaning, and maybe even charismatic experiences of the Spirit. One way of describing this kind of activity as as sort of play. Uh, To go back to Theophilus North, what this book really is, this novel by Thornton Wilder, is a kind of picture of a, of a saint, uh, a person who ends up being, having this amazing ministry without really trying to, by basically accepting what we've been talking about. He just takes what's in front of him and, and just kind of runs with it. It's a novel about true freedom, about sanctif- true sanctification and service, but all under the guise of a kind of playful humor and improvisation that is predicated on the idea that none of it really matters, which we could call justification by faith. It's all okay. We can just kind of go with it on the basis of things like justification by faith. So Theophilus um, is at the beginning of, of the novel in a subtle sort of way. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's just left a very boring, kind of soul-destroying job as a teacher in a school. Not that all such jobs are that way, but it was for him. 
Uh, and he has ahead of him, and this is the quote, four months without a single engagement to be met. That's Wilder's way of talking about the life that is justified by faith. Four months without a single engagement to be met. So I'll just read this little section where he gets anointed with the Spirit, at least that's how I see it. From the moment I resigned, two days before leaving the school, I discovered that several things were happening to me in my new state of freedom. I was recapturing the spirit of play, not the play of youth, which is games, i.e. aggression under the restraint of rules, but the play of childhood, which is all imagination, which improvises. I became lightheaded. The spirit of play swept away the cynicism and indifference into which I had fallen. Moreover, a readiness for adventure reawoken me, for risk, for intruding myself into the lives of others, for extracting fun from danger. And he does go on to have the most amazing adventures and I think the most amazing ministry I've ever seen described in print. Uh, and it is a Christian ministry, though it's very subtle. Uh, if you read it, you have to look, you have to know what you're looking for. He does all this without uh, any planning, without a clear sense of definite purpose, all in a spirit of improvisation, humor, and play. The spirit of freedom to accept all that is given as from God, the negative, the difficult, most especially, but also ultimately everything. This, I think, is the existential or an existential product of Protestant theology at its best. Here, wisdom about human nature's foibles and real experience of God are not finally mutually exclusive. More than any ministry I know of, Mockingbird here brings together the heights and the depths, the darkness and the humor, the appreciation of our real lives as they actually are and as they are played out before us in culture both high and low, in Dostoevsky and in, dare I say it, Elvis, in Thornton Wilder and in Disco. And all this in a deeply Christian spirit of freedom, humor, and play. So I just want to say a quick prayer. Dear Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to give to us to accept our lives, especially the difficult things, as the place where you are, and to see all that is given us from you. Amen. J.D., can I have can I that water? Here you go, Sim. Oh, uh, we're, we're, I think we got it. So, do we have any questions or comments? Dr. Zell, thank you. This is more of a comment than a question, so I'll keep it short. But I'm, I'm encouraged and comforted, as we were talking about those words earlier, um, to hear your description sort of the Spirit's work in sort of the mundane and kind of the normal place of life and where I sort of experience life myself. Because I've been, I've been involved in you know, small groups and things where people are studying books of the Bible where the Spirit is quite active, like Acts. And there's sort of this, this question, this sense of like, well, why, why aren't these things happening now? You know, Jesus promised that you will do greater things than these and just end up leaving those nights and talks quite depressed and uh, <laughs> so I really connect with what you're saying thank you very much thank you it's, uh, I, I do think that um, 
the dark side does have a way of creeping in. <laughs> like I said, I mean, it's, it's, um, but there is the kind of the boring <laughs> that is a part of our life. Um, and uh, I don't think we need to manufacture a darkness that isn't there. I think life will bring it out if it needs to come out. Yeah, I resonate with uh, the fact of us using experiences to justify what we want. You know, you may have experienced in youth group or college the God is calling me to break up with you thing, or, you know, using the Spirit as a way to, to, to justify what we're doing. And when you say that it's, it can be an experience of God, what's the difference between an experience of God and something being God's true word? You know, I've had people as a pastor say to me, God's calling me to this church you know, essentially for you to hire me. And I'm like, well, dang, I have to hire you now, you know? God told me. Um, what's the difference between an experience of God and, you know, a true word or commandment of God? It's a great question. Well, I think what Christoph Blumhart would say um, is that there is such thing as that kind of word from God. And um, the Bible's full of them, and, you know, and, and uh, the problem is that sometimes you, it's hard to know in a given case. And what Bloomhart said is, well, I'm not sure about that, but I know that if it's, do- if it's difficult, if it's hard, if it's unexpected, if it's turning your life upside down, it's more likely to be true. Luther said a very similar thing, actually, to, to Melanchthon. I mean, he wrote him a letter when these prophets had come through, and he said, do they preach the cross? I mean, you have to test what they're saying by the criterion of the cross. And uh, so there is something about that. I think beyond the, the difficult thing, I, you, you just have to take it as it comes. Um, you know, people are pretty messed up, and usually <laughs> motives are mixed, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but I think it's more that we can say that there's something more reliable about the, the hard things, the unexpected things, um, than about the kind of, you know, God wants you to give me a job. Um, and maybe God does want them to give, give the guy a job. Um, so that's what I would say about that. That's what Bloomhart would say. He would test in each case, I guess. And, and sometimes he was right, and sometimes he was wrong. Uh, he would probably, he was right a lot though. <laughs> oh God, who's that? Uh, S- Simeon, um, it, it, this idea of passivity, I, I'm with you on that, um, but this this idea of passively accepting what is as coming from God, especially the bad, is a very prominent idea in Islam. Hmm. And uh, if you, I don't know if you have any thoughts about, you know, is, is that the Holy Spirit at work within Islam to that degree? Uh, it doesn't seem to me any way to produce a tremendous amount of creativity uh, in that context. But I mean, I, I know people would argue with me that, you know, we have Aristotle because of Islam in some respects. So um, could you comment on that? Yes, well, um, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for... Islam, I wasn't, um, I wasn't fully aware of that. Um, I will say it's it's in the Bible. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, serious sections of it are just about accepting, trusting God for the things that you're worried about, not worrying about tomorrow, that kind of thing. And and if it's in Islam as well, maybe it is. But um, uh, I don't. I mean, the it's it's also in in the Bible. Uh, would that would be my immediate response? Um, uh, I mean, there are ways in which it can be problematic um, to, uh, you know, I mean, you, you can you can kind of justify crappy things by saying, oh, it's just what is. Um, 
And I don't think that's quite the answer. Just as it's not that sort of, you know, God is just, his real object here is just to make you, just to kill you. And that's it. That's the end of the story. I mean, there's a dynamic. It leads to something. And that's part of really believing in the, in the Holy Spirit. I mean, it is that, this, that the bad things are not the end. It frees you when you really trust that God is active as the Spirit. It trusts you. It frees you to actually accept the really tough stuff because uh, it's not the end of the story. Um, but that's, that's what I would say. I'm Jonathan Fisk. I'm a Lutheran pastor in the Missouri Synod. Um, so uh, you've spoken some very good things. I, I really do appreciate very much your elucidation of the theology of the cross in seeing God at work in suffering. Um, and as Ferdy would say, he kills you so that he can raise you from the dead. The question I have for the, the presentation, uh, and where I think I would, I, I do disagree at this point with the conclusion, uh, is why the category distinction and the leap from the Father and what he's doing actively in the world to the Spirit and this even then comes into play with the Islamic question that Lutherans would be more than happy to say that God is at work in Islam as the God of the law who kills, nothing more. Right. Uh, but he is not there by his Holy Spirit because we say with Luther, the Spirit comes with words about Christ to point to Christ. So just to maybe even just throw that in your mind, why the category jump to Spirit? It's a very good question. I mean, par- partly the, the, what's good about the category of the spirit um, is that it's, it, it, it has a very, I mean, it, in a way, it's just a way of talking about how God actually sort of interacts with us directly. It's, it's the son through the spirit. Um, that's sort of pretty standard kind of uh, Trinitarian theology. Um, uh, there's also a sense, and I mean, uh, I mean, for those of you who are interested in theology, I mean, the 20th century was sort of the, the century of Christology, of focusing a lot on, on uh, really dealing with doctrines about Jesus Christ um, very extensively. And, and, but toward the end, um, people were sort of saying, well, what about the Spirit? Um, the, the Spirit does things too. In terms of the categories, I mean, I'd be nervous about talking really drastically about different parts of God doing drastically different things. I mean, I don't think that that's not quite Trinitarian. Uh, I mean, you, uh, that, can, that can be said in, in, in complex and sort of subtle ways and, and, and so on. I don't think you're saying that, you know, that we have three gods, for example, because it could sound that way. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, there's also been a lot of work in Trinitarian theology to talk about how, how God always has to be fully present in all three members in anything that he does. Um, but uh, I find the spirit is a category that gets through to people, especially people who come out of kind of these, you know, the the pietist backgrounds, even if we've uh, reacted very strongly against them, so often we come from them. And the spirit is the category that those groups have used. Um, The spirit is the category that Luther used when he was addressing these questions. Um, So that's what I would say, I guess. But it's a good good point. I'll I'll think about it. We'll get to all the questions. Hi, uh, Jesse Zink, uh, Yale Divinity School. Um, Thinking about experience, you, you, you sort of make it sound um, as if experience is something which just happens and, and we experience it, and, and that's obviously true. Um, I've been reading this semester a lot of uh, Martin Luther King, and uh, when you think about the civil rights movement, 
it's, it's easy to look at that and see a lot of suffering um, by African Americans in the South and in this country and say that that suffering that they're experiencing doesn't just happen, but that suffering is actually caused by certain structures, by racism, by whatever it was that caused that. And so I, I want to put that out there. And then I, I want to sort of highlight um, part of King's response, which was to say, to embrace that suffering. And, and King is talking all the time about unmerited suffering and how that can be redemptive. And it's not a passive acceptance of suffering for King, I think, but a really assertive. Um, uh, and uh, King is talking, I, I've just been reading a lot of this, which is why it's on my mind, but um, he uses adjectives like assertive and militant. Um, and th those are not words that are synonyms of passive, but those are the words that he describes to relate to suffering. Right. And so I wonder how that relates to what you've just said. Mm -hmm. And also, um, if you could comment um, on the position out of which King is developing his theology and the position out of which you're developing yours. The, um, I think it's a fascinating example. Uh, and I think, um, I mean, the kind of passivity I'm talking about is, is something that would be equally true of his situation in that it, he did not create the suffering. He did not create the contexts of oppression and, and, and so on. Um, he was acted upon. Uh, you know, that was not his fault, right? Um, you know, say in, in that sort of context. Um, and so it's, it's passive by definition in that sense. I mean, it's, it, he didn't create it. Um, but I think there, you could talk about sort of actively embracing it as a way of just saying accepting it. I mean, accepting is a slightly active term, um, but that's not uh, quite the same as somehow manufacturing it. I mean, he, he's dealing with what's in front of him powerfully and creatively, uh, which is really, I guess, what I'm trying to talk about. I wasn't quite, didn't quite catch the last part, comparing where I'm coming from and where he's coming from, what you meant by that. How would you distinguish the two positions? Hmm. I mean, I, I, just, I don't know his, his, his theology as uh, well enough to really comment in detail. I mean, from what you've just described, it, it actually sounds like an example of the kind of thing I'm trying to, to get at. And I mean, and, and the, the activity that is still, I mean, nonviolence, for example, is, uh, is a fascinating bringing together of this kind of, the passivity and the creativity, uh, I think. Okay. <laughs> okay, this might be too personal of a question, so feel free to opt out. But um, just in talking about encouragement and all this, um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on the healing service in which you had this great experience in North Carolina, because I think it's encouraging for all of us to hear about other people. Sure. Um, I wonder, I was sort of, I'm kind of forever a Protestant in terms of feeling like God came to me rather than the reverse. Uh, I say this slightly tongue-in-cheek, but not really. Um, because that, I mean, I just went, my, my mom made me go on this trip. <laughs> that, that lady right, right there. Um, my dad was the dean, and I needed to be involved with the youth group, and I didn't really mind. It was I thought Gil was pretty cool. He, he'd read Ender's Game, and that was cool. Um, and uh, so I went along, and then on the Wednesday in the middle, there was a this healing service, and I didn't really know even what that was. Um, and I'd been having a great time. It'd been an amazing week. So many songs just started to sort of make sense, the Christian songs, in a way they hadn't before, sort of having chills, you know. Um, 
a little bit while you know hearing uh, reading singing songs and things and, uh, and there was a part in the service where you can go up and, and be um, prayed for just people put your put the gill would put his hands on you and, and pray for healing for something and a good friend of mine's father had just died quite suddenly um, and I thought sort of dutiful son of the pastor that I <laughs> oh I should go up and pray for that that's a bad situation that probably could. so I wasn't I didn't I wasn't against Christianity I wasn't not, not a, I, I just sort of went along and I got up there and uh, I mean it was what I described it was just sort of like a a, a curtain was removed from the world there were, I mean the, I, I said several times something about the world suddenly being imbued with meaning um, and with God being really just present everywhere with that um uh, and intimately involved with with um, my own particular situation, and that he was real. I was just like, oh, oh, <laughs> um, and I mean, it's hard, it's it's kind of the kind of thing that I it's, it's hard to put words to. Um, I remember I had there's a little voice in my head, kind of the analytical voice off to the side, saying, "This is an unprecedented experience in your life." <laughs> and I, remember, I distinctly remember thinking, "I will always be marked by this." There's no way to have experienced the power, the depth of what what's happening right now, and not be forever kind of branded by it. Even as I was kind of crying, and then like well, everyone else in the and then I turned around and everyone else in the room was crying too. I, I still don't know what they all went through, um, but uh, so that's that's what happened. And it just I, I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't looking for it. And there was no come to Jesus moment. There was no decision that was made. I just went up to pray for my friend because I thought that was I, I don't know I don't know what I did because I went on a trip that my mom made me go on. And um, to a kind of camp, uh, uh, so that I, I, there was a feeling of being chosen or of being acted upon um, without having chosen back. It was great, and then nothing like that happened to me for nine years. Hey, Simeon. Oh, hi. I have a question. Um, I. Uh, uh, have heard so many times in sermons and in small groups and in all kinds of settings an idea that uh, one has to make room for the Holy Spirit in one's life and that God is sort of impotent or at least has his hands tied voluntarily or involuntarily until you open the door, uh, which doesn't seem to be true with how Jesus approaches St. Peter or St. Paul or any number of people. Um, and. Uh, uh, or his statement, no one comes to the Father um, unless... Anyways, but uh, I'm just, I've always been, historically, uh, and I'm just interested where that idea has come from because it seems much more popular than what you've discussed. God in the Holy Spirit is already at work in your life and in probably the unpleasant areas. Um, that is almost never talked about. The only way that God works in your life is through ecstatic or powerful experiences mm -hmm. that happen... Um, and you pull the lever that controls that on some, mm -hmm. on, in some way. And so where that idea seems to be winning the battle, and I want to know where it came from. Hmm. If you, I mean, can you, do you know? <laughs> I did it. No. Um, uh, well, I, I think Fitz and Rod have spoken very powerfully about the, the reality of the bondage of the will, the original sin, the whole deal. I think that's, that's the most true answer, though maybe not help. Uh, you know, maybe it's not what you're getting going for. But um, I mean, it's funny. I think a lot of the time when people feel that way, they've actually already had an experience that was maybe a little less. I made room, 
and they're wanting to recreate it, and they're wondering why it's not happening again. And that's not all, not all the time, but I think charismatic Christianity, which I'm very sympathetic to and have been involved with, has a way of kind of, it's just a big, let's, let's have it happen again. Um, f- let's find ways to recreate the atmosphere uh, through the worship music, through the um, going up and being prayed for, through being in an environment where other people are doing it, I mean, all sorts of things, like, you know, turning the lights dim, I mean, you name it. Um, and it's all a kind of attempt to recreate these experiences that often have already happened. Uh, you know, a lot of the time, those the people who get involved with that, I mean, or uh, all, we, we, you know, the first time they come is they're not quite sure why. Um, it's not like you know what I'm. A, I've decided today I'm, a, I'm not a believer, and um, you know my friend is going to this tent meeting. You know, I think I'm going to make room for the Holy Spirit in my life today. I should go to that thing. You know, they showed up and then it happened, and then later maybe they they tell themselves this story about about making room. Um, I mean, that's what I, I think it can feel like that sometimes. Like, but I think we only make room when we want to make room. Um, so, I mean, I think people there are people out there who really genuinely feel they made a decision for for Jesus or whatever that was very powerful to them. And and I would just say behind that decision was they were given to desire to make that decision. Um, so that's what I would say. Simeon, thank you very much for this presentation. We mark the markings of a doctor of theology who has wrestled with something that ties to his life, and we're privileged to have you here, and you're obviously causing a very vivid discussion. Uh oh. One of the great joys that I... I meant that all very sincerely. <laughs> One of the great joys that I have with, with Mockingbird uh, that I've run into only recently as a Lutheran is the firm confirmation that Luther neither began with nor does he end with Luther. And I think there's plenty of evidence here in this conference that he is going on to places uh, that are delightfully surprising. The other side of that coin is though I believe that Luther doesn't begin with Luther either. And this way of doing theology sub contrario is not a particularly Lutheran thing. You can find it, I believe, with Augustine, and if I'm not mistaken, with some of mysticism and medieval monasticism. I have a twofold question, and that is, based on this, there's this little verb in German, it's a help verb, and it's called lassen. And it's sort of this way that you talk about things passively, but in some ways it's not quite passive because you're still doing it. You're sort of letting something happen. And I see something of a discrepancy here in that we talk about passivity, but that passivity is somehow tied to the verb accept, and we're the ones running that verb, which doesn't quite then look passive. And that ties to my second part of this question, which is you made the comment, if God feels this way, that's where the spirit is. And if he feels that way, that's where the spirit is. And if he feels another way, that's where he is. And I quote, we have to be able to find the spirit of God there too. My question then is this. What if I feel absolutely abandoned by God? Does that mean here is where the spirit isn't? And if that's not the case, what does that mean to me in my abandonedness to then have to be able to find the spirit of God there? If you'll pardon me for saying so, ouch. To, to start with the, the latter part, thank you for your question. Um, the, 
I think you've, you've misunderstood me. I don't think that there is some practice that needs to happen, some process that we need to, some way we need, if we just get our heads around it right and understand the Spirit uh, is present in a certain way, I mean, that so quickly will lead to just, if I can just figure out where the Spirit is, then I can control God, then I can um, be in charge, then I can avoid uh, what's happening. Um, so I don't think, uh, I mean, that, that's not what I'm trying to say, and if that's, that's what it sounded like, that was, um, then I misspoke. Um, it's much more, the point is that we don't normally hear that God is in the abandoned place. And it can be very powerful to be told that he is. Uh, spirit willing for that to be maybe an actually, you know, the spirit could say that to some, to say actually I am here or, or, or something, or to free us to accept a thing. It's not our doing. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't describe it. Uh, so I'm not too worried about, about that aspect of it. I mean, if somebody's trying to control their dark experience, you know, that, that's not really what I'm talking about. Um, uh, and the first part was about um, uh, Lassen. Uh, I mean, Romans 12, uh, which we heard about, has passive imperatives in it, some of the funniest grammatical constructions in the New Testament. Be transformed uh, uh, by the power of your... I mean, how, a transformation is something... I mean, uh, and uh, be renewed. There's this implication both of... that's the things that are happening that someone else does, the transformation, the renewing, it's what God does, and yet we're supposed to do it passively. Um, and so, I, I mean, that's just, that's just language. It's a way of trying to get at a kind of paradox about passivity and activity. Um, I, I, I'm not too worried about the, the nuances of the, of the language there. Um, uh, certainly, I think if it's the wrong kind of activity that creeps its way in the door through some... some uh, in one way or another, which it usually does, then, then that becomes the problem. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's a, a solution that we can control, uh, which I think is maybe the concern behind some of your questions. Hey, Sam. Hey. Um, so a lot of the questions sounds like it could be framed around the, the issue of discernment, of when the, the Spirit is working, uh, and I appreciate a lot the kind of... Uh, orientation towards acceptance and the kind of negative things that um, that it, the negative ways in which one can experience the work of the Holy Spirit but you know I'm a historian I noted in passing that you mentioned that Bloomhart is a faith healer and I would I think we'd be remiss to not hear a little more from you about that because people traveled miles and miles and miles to be positively affected by the Spirit via him. Yeah. And presumably he had reflections in, on what the process of discernment in that yeah. context mm -hmm. was about, too. So could you just speak to that a little bit? I would, I would be very happy to. Thank you. There was only so much room in the, in the thing. Um, uh, well, one thing, I mean, the stuff I'm talking about, I think I'm not really, haven't direct, I'll let me talk about charismatic theology and stuff. For those of you who know about it, I mean, I, so I haven't mentioned speaking in tongues. I haven't mentioned specific kind of you know, miraculous healing, a lot of the characteristics one associates with, with charismatic movement. And it's because I think the real theological issue with um, charismatic theology from the kind of perspective that many of us here are coming from is the issue of, of self-deception. And, um, uh, and, and so, that there's a, you know, miracles aren't a problem. <laughs> it's thinking that it, 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 it's us being, or God speaking to us isn't a problem. It's us 
getting it wrong or, or baptizing what we want to do and, and saying it's God that's the problem from our perspective. So I think once we've accepted a certain kind of experience, to then go on to accept speaking in tongues or that kind of stuff, I don't think that's as big a theological issue. Uh, so I think we can do that based on these resources, even if we don't talk about it. You know, if that seems to be the uh, what makes sense. Um, in terms of Bloomhart, he uh, he's one of the only uh, healers, surely in history, who quit his healing ministry for four years at one point. Not because it wasn't working, you know, as far as, you know, the reports go, um, but because he thought people were getting much more interested in being healed, you know, surprise, surprise, people being people, they were much more interested in being healed than in the God who was doing it, Bloomhart thought. So he said, I will now stop, I will not do this, I think it's it's wrong uh, for people to come for healing. He had a stock letter he wrote to send to people, they would write to him to say, please uh, pray for me, for healing, and, and he, he sent back them back a letter saying, I no longer do this, uh, because people have misunderstood the cross, essentially, um, and uh, God is much you know, less interested in you being healed than in you caring about him, though he does heal, uh, and then he did return, you know, he didn't stop forever, um, and he did return, so he stopped healing, not because he was caught out as a fraud, but because he thought they had bad theology, um, and uh, so he very much believed that um, he saw those kinds of things like healings and miracles as signs of the imminent coming of the kingdom, as eschatological, as signs of what heaven will be like. He thought that heaven would be on earth quite literally, uh, and that the sign that that thing. I mean, he actually interpreted or had a part of his very dark view of the world and of human nature that's very Lutheran in certain ways comes out of his sense that as long as death is still around in this world. God really hasn't done that much yet. What Jesus did on the cross is still kind of waiting in, in potentiality. So this is where he gets into some of his maybe more controversial ideas. But um, So he found a way of interpreting a world where people are still sinners and where people do not get healed all the time and quite most of the time um, as a sign that really the kingdom was a long way off um, and, and needed to come. He had all sorts of things to say. He wasn't as a warm feelings. He didn't. He, he was like, ah, sometimes I have warm feelings. Uh, uh, for him, that wasn't very interesting. Um, but he did think this, there was a kind of encounter with God that was visceral. That I, I think it's like the the, the, the lady uh, in the Theophilus North chapter, being having revealed to her that her life is not what she thought it was, and it's much, and the, and the pain she's causing to people around her. Um, that's the kind of thing that he thought was how we know that God is God is there most reliably. So, hope that's helpful. Thanks for fielding all these questions. Um, uh, just as a pastor, uh, one of uh, the most frustrating things that I, I, I deal with when I'm talking with people is how uh, the experience trumps everything. Mm. You know, most American Christians are are Finian, not Christian, and how the American, how the, how the experience trumps everything. And I want to know how does Bloomhart link the uh, subjective experience to the reality of the objective word? The, um, I mean, that's the, the problem. Actually, it's very hard. I mean, I'm writing about sort of charismatic theology and so on, but it's, I feel it's a little bit like a thankless task because most charismatic and Pentecostal people are not very interested in reading theology because that's not the nature of the, of the theology, partly because experience trumps everything. Um, and uh, so, I mean, first, so Bloomhart, he, people would say, I experienced this, God told me this or that, and he wouldn't say, that's great. He would say, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. 
knowing people, he probably only sort of did. <laughs> uh, and tell me more about your difficulties, and that's, that's when I'll tell you where I, I'm pretty sure God is working in your life. How it relates to the objective word. Um, well, I think uh, Bloomheart was a funny... The, the biggest criticism I had from the various sort of Bloomhart scholars in, in Germany and elsewhere from, from my work was that I, um, I Bloomhart again and again said these things about the Bible where he said, well, you know, people, he was reacting to a pietistic context where people were just spending their whole lives in Bible studies and kind of thinking that was, that was the whole deal. And so he was always sort of saying, you know, don't read your Bible so much because you get numb to it or um, just sort of controversial things about scripture that, that um, you know, are not really what most people say. <laughs> Christian, uh, Orthodox Christianity. Um, at the same time, every single thing he preached was based on a scripture text. All of his theology was suffused with categories. It was all categories he got from scripture. He was a person who lived and breathed the word of God like, uh, like almost no one else. I mean, he was, really, he was a child of this, this deeply biblical context, and he was till the day he died. So the, you know, he'll have some sermon about, well, the, you know, there's a certain kind of... Um, way in which we can, can use the Bible to our own advantage. Um, that that you know, Bible interpretation, too, isn't reducible to... Um, I mean, it can be influenced by the flesh. Um, and, uh, but he would base that sermon on a biblical text and using categories that he drew from the Bible. So, so he had a complicated relationship to the Word um, in that kind of... So he can sound like he was more critical of it than he was, um, but he also was willing to say some pretty radical things in response to problems that he saw around him. Um, uh, so he would definitely not agree with Luther about talking about the spirit being tied in this, you know, the vast majority of the time, at the very least, to the, the objective word. He, would, he saw people who said things like that around him who he thought were, were legalists and, and were, were, missing, were missing something that the experience could fix. That was his diagnosis. Um, but he actually did that as somebody who was uh, people, several different people independently said, you go to Bloomhart and you feel like you're, you're back in the Bible. Like he, he had this kind of personality that was so suffused with, with a kind of New Testament um, kind of feel and it's everything he said. Anyway, so, so, he, so he could be both critical of it and he was sort of critical of the, of the objective word for its own sake, he would have said. Uh, and that, that may not be an answer everyone will, will sign on with, but um, that's what he thought. Hey, Dad. Um, Simeon, um, can you say a little bit about how the Holy Spirit works in male-female relationships? <laughs> the, uh, I got married almost five years ago now. Before that, I was just lonely. I mean, my friend was. Um, uh, and Bonnie, unfortunately, can't be here. Um, but marriage, uh, I mean, talk about birth pangs and uh, being faced with the thwarting of your ego, which Bloomhart saw as the sign of the Spirit. Um, uh, marriage is, is, is more than anywhere in my life in the last five years. It's probably been the place where these things have come to the fore. Um, I think uh, I, you know, we both spent, and we still do a fair bit, but we both spent the first two years, three years of our, of our marriage spending an enormous amount of energy resisting each other, 
resisting each other's will. You know, Bonnie wanted to do this, and I wanted to do that, and you know, should we spend this money or not, or should we, um, how should we, should we dry the, under the dish rack after we put the dishes up so that it doesn't leave stains or not? Uh, um, I mean, these things that you, that you spend all your time and energy on <laughs> a lot of the time in, in, in marriage. Um, and we just, and, and it was just, just killed us, that resistance to each other, to, uh, to coming at things from just very different perspectives. Um, both because of where we were coming from and just because we're different people, but also because uh, I'm, a, I'm a man, she's a woman. Um, and uh, so it's an enormously powerful context for this sort of thing to have an effect. I mean, so to learn to accept the reality that you are married to this person and they are the way they are and they're not likely to change. One of the best things that can happen uh, in, in marriage and one of the best ways you can improve your, your happiness quotient. Um, though you, though it, you, you can't do it on your own. <laughs> I mean, it, it happens to you. Uh, it becomes so much more painful to have an argument than to just wipe the darn sink. <laughs> and, and suddenly you find yourself wiping it when she's away. Um, and that's okay. and it's kind of nice. Uh, so the the, the giving, a, the accepting of the other as they are, which we resist so much, is such a source of happiness <laughs> and and creativity and love. Um, but it's so hard, especially and I'm sure it'll. I mean, especially those first two years, I just wasn't a lot of fun sometimes. Thanks, Sam.